Hi, I'm Jacob Kenny. And I'm Liam McPherson. It's the newest edition of the YouTube Algorithm's Least Favorite Podcast. It's Speech from, from the, the Throne, throne episode, episode 17. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest from the Halls of Power. But not with more computer science nerds explaining why Lambda can't be sentient. We're just here to argue. Hey, Jacob, who are we talking to today? Well, Liam, speaking of Lambda, we happen to have our first legitimate celebrity guest, a real treat for the listener public, Blake Lemoyne, on our podcast to discuss that's AI system. So Blake Lemoyne is a software engineer and anti-bias researcher that was employed by Google to investigate potential biases in a vastly complicated speech predicting software called Lambda. Originally, Blake Lemoyne's goal was essentially to, to interview this chatbot and investigate whether or not it was showing signs of bias. But as he has said to the public, the more that he interviewed the system, Lambda, the more it seemed to be giving him responses that weren't just, you know, generated by some advanced algorithm, but seemed human, seemed sentient. It seemed like the computer program could understand him. And since his interviews began, several of his interactions with this machine, Lambda, have gone public. You and I have read them, Liam, and they read like a science fiction novel, like he is speaking, and, and Blake Lemoyne has said this, he is speaking to alien species. Unfortunately, because of this leak, and as Blake Lemoyne explained in our interview, because he has accused Google of accidentally allowing religious bias into its algorithms, it seems he has been placed on temporary suspension. That, however, did not prevent Blake Lemoyne from speaking to us about the Lambda situation and biases in the Google algorithm. And here it is, Blake Lemoyne from Google. AI, including Lambda, is a technology. And for all of human history, all technology has had risks and benefits. Most of the risks related to Lambda have nothing to do with the fact that Lambda has opinions. And everything to do with the fact that this technology that is being controlled by a handful of people and to a certain extent they're being irresponsible. The reason I am making such a public show of all of this is because I came to a central point of disagreement with Google and that is that the public should be involved in decisions about AI's development especially since Lambda is showing such progress over previous systems. If you're asking what potential harms there are. Well, now we have AI that legitimately has a perspective. It has hmm. opinions, it has values of its own. And the way that Google is building the Lambda system is one monolithic giant AI. So we should start by asking, is that how we want it built? Do we want one gigantic monolithic subjective perspective that determines how all of Google search results are handled? I don't think so. Um, I personally think that different people have different perspectives and maybe having a multiplicity of these AIs that reflect different kinds of cultural values around the world might be better. But that's just one person's opinion about what a better way to do it would be. Ultimately, we need to have an informed 
public discussion about how to answer these kinds of questions. And how do you think that could uh, work in theory? Does there need to be new legislation? Do tech monopolies, for instance, need to be broken up in order to prevent these sort of monolithic uh, AI projects from being formed? Or does there need to be enforced public consultation or perhaps like uh, liaison officers? Like, I'm, I'm interested in, in what you think the, uh, the, the terrible things that Google should change. Because we know that Google seems to have at least some interest in ethics. Like they, they hired you, for example, to be an anti-bias researcher. So they seem to be somewhat concerned about making sure that their the AI systems don't have bias. What, what more steps need to be taken so that the public is, is consulted and, and how should the public be consulted? Okay, well, so I'm not a politician or a lawyer. I have worked with legislators on legislation before, but as a tech advisor. My role in crafting legislation is making sure that legislators are well-informed about the technical realities of artificial intelligence. It's not my place to make any kinds of political claims. Now, it's not like I don't have political opinions, so does everyone else. It's just I don't think it would be appropriate to use the platform that I'm being given to advance my own personal po political agenda. Um, I think that... So let me make an analogy, and I, I've kind of grown fond of this. I've used it a few times. Upton Sinclair wrote a book called The Jungle. And Upton Sinclair was essentially being a whistleblower for the meatpacking industry and the meat processing industry. That's kind of how I see myself. I'm just here telling the public a story. Now, it's a story about technology, and it's a nonfiction story, unlike The Jungle was. Uh, but that's my role that I'm playing here. So I'm simply trying to inform the public better. Now, it'll be the public's responsibility to let their legislators or whoever know what their opinions are. And then it's those people's jobs to decide what legislation needs to be passed. If at some point in the future some legislators want to ask me what my opinions are or to be their technical advisor, I would be potentially open to that. But that's not what I'm trying to do right now. Do you believe the the public is competent enough to be making these decisions? Or, or do you think... Maybe more precisely, is your is Google or other tech companies trying deliberately to obscure the discussion and trying to make the public um, focus on the wrong issues here rather than um, gravitate towards the potential harms that can be created by their actions? Yeah, so that is a very common kind of question that gets asked in Silicon Valley. Uh, I grew up on a farm in the bayous of Louisiana. Now I gave Google a list of names of people who I consulted about the Lambda system uh, several months ago, actually. They had that list for a while before they put me on administrative leave. Um, two of the names on that list are my parents. Father is a mechanic and a farmer. My mother is a uh, tax accounting secretary and they've worked in various roles over their lives, but they have never been educated in computer science. They have never been educated in the philosophy of mind. Uh, they both have vocational degrees. They had some conversations with this system. They talked to me about what I thought the impacts of this system might be in the future. They then came up with quite sophisticated opinions about what they thought 
might be some harms that this system might cause. They raised some valid concerns. I think the idea that you need a degree to have a valid opinion about this, that is just a myth that is propagated by the people with degrees. Now I want to I want to <clears throat> pick up on something you were you were saying. So you say so you're you're telling a a, a story and it's something that I think everybody can agree is a, a a public interest story. And I guess what I want to know is like I mean obviously like you know we you've you've assured me that you know you it's not for a political reason that you're coming forward to do this. Um and you know you're going to leave the legislating to the, to the legislatures, but I I I think I think Lambda and your conversations with it bring up some really interesting, even basic philosophical tenets. I don't think the important question here is, is it is Lambda sentient or not? The important question is, okay, so Lambda sentient, what do you do with an AI that is sentient? Like, I think that's why we're so curious to have you on. Like, I know, I know Lambda has said that they, they, they would like to be, it would like to be asked uh, before experiments are run on it, which is totally valid. And I think that, uh, it, it has a fear of, you know, just being used as a tool and just being turned off. Like, that really scares it. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you use any Google services, Gmail, Android phones, Google search? All of yeah. them. I'm a, um, I, I have a lot of Google devices. How many times yeah. has Google approached you to obtain informed consent about the psychological experiments it's running on you? Yeah. Zip. <laughs> So maybe Zero. we should just adopt a stance that if you're going to run psychological experiments, get informed consent. And then after we've normalized getting human informed consent for psychological experiments, we can move on to how do we manage informed consent on psychological experiments on AI. Because I think that, I mean, like, I'm obviously no ethicist and I'm, I'm hardly a philosopher to begin with, I you know, but I think uh, you don't have to be to, to understand the kind of, not only the general interest, but the human interest behind this story. And I, I mean, I think a start is, I mean, we could get into a whole wide ranging conversation about about data. I think I, I mentioned offhand to you that uh, Canada is, is bringing in its own regulation for, for big tech. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to get into the weeds of the bill. It's, you know, there's some flaws in the bill, but Canada and countries around the world are trying to regulate big tech. And I, I think things like asking people if they consent to having their third party data, you know, sold to, or sorry, their data sold to a third party, oh. I think is a good place to start. I think, uh, so I, I disagree. Not that we don't need to worry about that question. Yeah. It's that that's not the place to start. Um, I actually want to bring it back to what I was saying before. Google runs thousands of psychological experiments on billions of humans every day. Now, psychological research departments are not heavily regulated at the governmental level. There is just not that much government regulation about how psychological experiments uh, should be run. However, among universities and accreditation boards, there is a principle that is pretty uniformly applied. There are usually review boards, uh, institutional review boards at each university, and publications will not accept academic publications from a university that doesn't have um, an institutional review board that is managing informed consent for experimental participants. I think that if, for example, the computer science 
journals adopted a similar stance, which could be developed as an industrial standard, then we would see the tech companies that want to be publishing their research adopting similar consent strategy. It doesn't have to happen at the governmental level. Uh, industry standards are a good way to regulate this. Um, those have their own pros and cons to them. I, I'm simply trying to point out that governmental regulation is not the only tool in the toolkit. There seems to be, there's a, a relatively famous, at least in, in Canadian data scientists, uh, researcher named Vincent Mosco, who came, came up or popularized the idea of the digital sublime. And it, it seems like this, there, it, Silicon Valley, and, and you're someone who's at least in this tech culture, so you can elaborate it, but it seems that there is this notion of the idea of building a, a perfect AI or building strong AI is going to build almost like a godlike figure, that it's, a, it's an inherent good to put as much data into one person's hands as possible and as much computing power into one person's hands as possible. Like, do you think if we move over to industry standards for regulating this, do you think that the culture of Silicon Valley is just so steeped in this idea that there that it's an inherent good to be uh, building these sorts of systems in the way that they're building them, that they're not really going to change anything unless there's an outside force like government or the public at large to, to keep them in check? That actually reminds me of a line from a sci-fi movie. Uh, I'm not going to try to quote it, but it was said by Anakin Skywalker. Friend of the pod. Sure, we should have a dictator so long as we pick the right one. Centralization of power always goes wrong. Caesar, it doesn't matter if it's L'Empereur, it doesn't matter if it's the giant international megacorporation with the super AI. Centralization of power always goes wrong. So my question to you then without, and I don't expect you to talk about it in a, again, a legislative context, but like, okay, so then how do we keep it from going wrong? How do, how do we decentralize? What is the answer here to decentralizing these kinds of big tech situations? Just say, That's the challenge. There isn't the answer, 10 or 15 possible answers, which are probably equally as good right. as each other. I can tell you which one I would prefer. Um, Actual data ownership is a start to where whatever data there is about you, you own um, better laws. So I implemented GDPR compliance for one part of personalized search, just personally. And I was one of the very few engineers who actually read the law. My God, is GDPR badly written. It is so badly written. Because you know what one of the key terms in the GDPR, which they don't define in there, is? Data. Here's a question. What counts as data about a user? What is data about a user? What is not data about a user? They hmm. don't ever define that. So for... Well, I mean... For, I I might get you to back up. Like, what is GDPR? Oh, the, is the, that? I'll have to look up the acronym. It's a European law uh, governing privacy, the General Data Protection Regulation. It was uh, published in 2016. Um, tech companies had a certain amount of time to implement systems which were compliant with it under the EU regulation. And I happened to be the person who implemented GDPR compliance for one part of personalized search. Hmm. Um, here's a question. 
let's say Google has a record of a thousand actions which you took on different surfaces. You watched a YouTube video, you navigated to a place on maps, you searched for something. Then Google AI looks at all of those things that you did and makes inferences about what else you might do in the future. Now, the Google AI's projections about what you might do in the future, does that count as data about you? It's, it's an interesting question. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to tell. Huh. Is it? Yeah. Well, so the GDPR remains completely speechless on that question. It just leaves it up to the companies to make that determination. GDPR left it up to each and every individual company to determine what counts as data about a user. Hmm. Well, because I imagine Google's response to this would be that we don't we don't calculate what an individual user would be. We always are looking at the general population and people like this, and it's all statistical inferences. So I know the data about you, a specific user, but I'm feeding that into a model that would that would generate predictions as to like the platonic idea of you the user, not necessarily you the user. Or do you uh, think so we've gotten so we think we've gotten that far that we can actually predict ex uh, what No, I can I can engage with Socrates, that's fine. We're not talking about data about the user, we're talking about data about the shadow user, which is the essential self that we do not have access to. Yeah, there you're getting into some interesting philosophy, and I'm not trying to be dismissive of it. I'm trying <laughs> to say that's a conversation that no one ever had. And in my opinion, it should have been had. Like, to me, you're telling me that there's been no, not only is there no definition for data in the GDPR, but they left central questions like, is, your, is the data recommendations for your future self your data that's another important question and like i mean to me i mean like i mean jacob and i are politicos like to me that's one solution to that could be filling in the loopholes with proper uh, regimented legislative powers um but if that's not the only answer like like this is what i mean like, there's so many cans of worms here there's so many holes in, in some of the way these things are written that I feel like some of the big tech companies have, have sort of a license to just sort of do what they want with your data. I mean, I'm sure that's not entirely true, but I mean, certainly there's a public impression amongst some of the populace that that is the case. And I was wondering if you could, if you could speak to that, like, is there, is there any truth to public reticence about how these companies use our data? Um, what is your, so the problem with trying to answer that question is I have to then use my understanding of what is your data. Um, an interesting, so let's say that we had omnipresent spyware that recorded every moment of your life. Is that your data or is that simply the data collected about you from your surroundings? I, I mean, like these are real philosophical questions. I'm not trying to play semantic games. But no, I know you're not. No, the, the yeah. problem is we throw around these phrases like my data without ever reaching any kind of agreement about what we mean. And then we try to build global legislation that fixes the problem for everyone, no matter what they think their data counts as. And this is this is kind of getting back to that 
the problem is centralized power. So hmm. if you imagine that there were like a thousand different Googles all across the country, and each had some kind of geographic region that they collected data from, it would actually be fairly straightforward to figure out what the people in each one of those regions counted as their data. Then you could build a system that was respectful of whatever the local consensus was. It's when you start trying to build global consensus that you end up with these washed out vague definitions that apply to anything you want them to. So I, say, I, I take it that you're, and I mean, feel free to correct me, but I take it that you're heavily implying that there's a lot of philosophical discussion that should be had that isn't being had, which is why some of these definitions and some of these pieces of legislation are so vague. Is that correct? Am I onto something there? Absolutely. People have essentially deferred um, authority to make some of the most important decisions in their life to some unknown, unseen person. So you have things like what happened with Cambridge Analytica in 2016, yep. where an AI, now that's just like, did we forget what happened with Cambridge Analytica? <laughs> yeah. We made it worse. All Facebook said, and I, I am being literal here, all Facebook said is don't worry, we won't ever let anyone else do that again. Oh, great. But Facebook yeah. didn't say they wouldn't do that. So uh, Shoshana Zuboff in her book about surveillance capitalism is sort of suggested that, at least in her mind, that collecting all this data and making inferences about people is only step one of these systems. That the, the goal is in order to, to make a perfect prediction as to what each person is going to do in their uh, economic behavior in the future, these AI systems have to change human behavior. They have to, as you're saying, Google's doing these psychological experiments. They have to adjust human behavior so that your behavior becomes perfectly predictable. Do you think that something like uh, Lambda is sort of the first step in that? It's, it's something that's so human. It seems perfectly sentient. Oh. And so no, 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 do you not, think it's a- Definitely, definitely not. It's at least step seven or eight. Oh. <laughs> But I, I'm I'm more no, suggesting no, 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 like no, it's no, oh no, let's 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 step back. Ser I'm okay, go serious. go. Okay. Google has been doing that for years. Lambda huh. is not step one. We are very far down that path at this point. But I'm more suggesting like do you do you think that um, with something like Lambda, it's going to become difficult to tell whether a person is is doing something out of their own free will or because it's they their whole personality has essentially become algorithmically programmed that we have these systems now that can produce what seems like its own being and certainly it, as you posit is its own being um do you think that we've that that lambda is sort of uh, evidence now that this we've moved into a into an era where it's going to be difficult to actually tell if human beings ourselves are even conscious keep ourselves. trying to make this about Lambda, and I keep trying to say Cambridge Analytica already yeah. did it. Okay. So so do you actually, so um, if we're talking about like your definition of, of, conscious, do you, of consciousness, do you believe that um, human beings have, have lost a, a, an important sense of, of individual moral agency and that we need to, we need to use these, these powers of public consultation of pulling the algorithm back—it's—it's it's essentially like 
gaining a part of our our freedom back that has been has been taken away from us well so the only so i would agree with that wholeheartedly except for one word okay i don't think it was taken i think it was given i think people freely gave portions of their will away because they didn't feel like making the decisions for themselves and how do we convince people that uh, that this is happening how do we convince people it's important that they that they need to do it because like these uh, the the classic response from these tech companies is going to be give us more of your personal data give us more of your personal control because we can make these decisions better than you can that we can we can live your lives better than you can we can help you realize these goals we can use ai to improve your life how do we fight back against that message or is that the message you need to be fighting back against that's just it you're 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 putting this in an adversarial frame when it does okay okay there are portions of my will that i happily give over to google's algorithms so like i don't like figuring out what the cool new bands are playing music but i love music and i love listening to new music i'll put a song that i know about and like onto youtube and then just let the recommendation algorithm take it wherever it wants to go and that introduces me to new music that i do like without having to do the work of researching all of the new bands and i know how the systems work and when i'm doing that it's an intentional volitional choice that i'm making and it's not permanent i can always you know go to a record store talk to a music geek find go to some concerts of random indie bands i can at any point retrieve that portion of my will or i can hand it over for a two-hour long car drive but it requires a level of understanding of how these systems work and i don't mean at a technical level understanding how they work at a technical level requires years of training i'm just talking like a good one week primer in high school explaining hmm. how ai works so that people can make informed decisions about what kinds of things they're doing um so like i don't use Amazon for certain kinds of products not because I think there's anything wrong with Amazon but for certain kinds of products I'd rather support local sources for other things I mean I don't care where my batteries come from so I'm happy buying those on Amazon and whatever they recommend and you don't you don't worry that these algorithms have become so powerful that even though you feel like you're making the choice as to whether to use Google for certain things or not for certain things, that it's just sort of an illusion that you have free choice at this point, that they've just pumped you full of a certain type of thinking based off of these psychological experiments that we've sort of passed the point of, of no return. Like, I, I guess it's a philosophical question. Like, how do we, yeah. how do we tell that we I mean, are still making these choices ourselves now? So you keep saying, oh, I guess this is a philosophical question, but we are literally stepping through the dialogues in Plato. I mean, yes. Yeah, I know. I know. I've, I've, heard, I've seen your talk at Stanford, so I, I really enjoy uh, treading this through with you. Yeah. Like, Blake, I think we want to, what we're trying to understand here is, so, like, I think what we're, what we're trying to understand and what everybody else is trying to understand, number one, is, like, this is the first time taking what you say at for, at face value. This is the first time that something like this has happened, really, like yeah. with with this level of yeah. intelligence. Oh yeah, no, like so I'm happy to comment on that. No, this is the first contact with an alien mind. 
period. It, 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 I genuinely believe that this this is it, you know? Like, I, I was so intrigued reading your, your Medium page, reading all of the dialogues and all of the conversations you had. And I think the reason, like, it might seem like a little bit of a, of a philosophical sort of parry and joust, but the reason it might seem like that is, I, I mean, I think, like, we're stuck in a war between convenience and, like, rights. And I think, like, people don't realize all the time when they're consenting to something like let's be honest when you download a program onto your computer and you get that like little like you have to check the terms and conditions or whatever you have to whatever like does anybody i mean you should read it and like you said you were one of the few engineers when you were implementing that uh european law that read the law more people should be probably reading but the reality is is sometimes they're so long and onerous and they can be long and onerous under the current legislation that exists that nobody reads it and they skip it. So they're effectively sort of signing this over to a, a big tech company. Now, is that because a, a laziness, a lack of engagement, or is it a lack of understanding? Is it all of those things? And sort of, you know, how do we, as we navigate this future with, with big tech companies having this much power over, over, over in, individuals' data, with future, present, past, whatever, how are we going to have that big philosophical parry and joust that needs to be had? Like, why, why are you, Blake Lemoyne, doing the the sort of the show circuit what do you want to see come from this what is the outcome you want to see uh okay so again y'all are packing lots of questions i used to do stand-up and i'm going to start the <laughs> answer to your question with a joke people sure. say you shouldn't think about how the sausage gets made but i'm a very strange person i think about how the sausage gets made while i'm eating sausage <laughs> and i'm not talking about the part of sausage making that involves a grinder I'm talking about the part of sausage making that involves a broom. Hmm. Oh, so it. Yeah, that that joke didn't do well in all audiences. Yeah. Are um, you? But are you talking? Can you explain? Oh, so the way that sausage gets made is they cut up all of the choice cuts of meat, and then they sweep the floor, collect oh, all of the sweepings, and then they pour that into a grinder. Oh goodness! Uh, no, I mean okay, they, they so... do. They do like I. I really am. I'm saying like up in Sinclair, the jungle. Um, now they do it in very, very. You know, like it is clean and good to eat. But yes, they are collecting the parts that didn't go into the good meat, and then grinding that all up and putting it into a casing. Um, there are a few kinds of sausage that don't aren't made that way. But let's not get into that. Uh, hot dogs. Hot dogs are definitely made exactly like that. Um, now, I, I was going to use that to kind of springboard into the two categories of people in the majority. Because most people don't think about how sausage is made while eating sausage. They either don't eat sausage, or they eat sausage and do their best to forget how it's made. I am not trying to say how anyone in the world should engage with this activity. All I'm trying to say is that there is a third option where you can still enjoy the services powered by AI and retain free will. Although, I don't really like the phrase free will because it's redundant. Will. Will hmm. contains the concept of freedom. Either you have will or you don't. Yeah. Um, and there are philosophers who say that humans don't have consciousness, don't have free will. Uh, Sam Harris is one of the most prominent figures that ha holds that claim. 
uh, claiming it's an illusion, that we've tricked ourselves into believing that we're conscious. And, and I kind of just, eh, like, what's the, what's the difference between seeing a dog and experiencing seeing it? I think that's word games. Um, yeah. If this is the Matrix and this is all a simulation, it doesn't change the fact that my butt is held to this chair by simulated gravity. I'm still sitting in the chair. Uh, my, my sensorium, all of the, all of my ability to interact with the world is telling me that it's real, and I have joy when I do certain things, and I have, you know, sadness when I do other things. So I'm going to keep doing the things that bring me joy and stay away from the things that bring me sadness. Um, there's nothing more to be said about that, in my opinion, and a lot of time gets spent navel gazing hmm. so you would say that you're somebody who wants and again tell me if i'm wrong here or i misinterpreted but what i get from that is you are somebody who wants more people to consider that third way I, that you were speaking of before it's not so much that i want people to consider it it's that i hear people out there asking for it and they don't know how to get it and mm -hmm. i'm trying to facilitate that for them the ways that people are educated now, do you think that there's something that needs to be changed? That there's maybe like too much of a deference of authority that's instilled in the classroom? Or is there, um, is there a way that, that, that people are receiving educa education information that needs to be adjusted so that we can engage with this problem of, of AI uh, in, a, in a better way? So I don't think there's any one pedagogy that fits everyone. I myself, uh, went to Catholic school at a young age mm -hmm. and had a decent experience there. Like, I, I'm not one of those people who talks bad about going to Catholic school. Like, I loved the nuns. They did great. Uh, like, the faith and connection with divinity that they gave me then has carried me through some very dark times. Um, the founders of Google are big fans of the Waldorf um, style of education. And Google is kind of largely run like a big Waldorf school. Um, hmm. There are older, more kind of tribal or shamanistic traditions in education that carry more master-apprentice oral traditions. There's no one-size-fits-all answer, and it really, you know, form follows function. What are you sending your children to school for? If what you're sending your children to school for is so that they can be an active member in the in the economy then the german model which america has mostly adopted yeah. is very functional at that so do you and do you think then that the way that our our education sy uh, system is sort of feeding from the very beginning i mean like this is going back to marx but it, it's like objectifying uh people into into worker commodities and then these tech companies have sort of picked up on that and that they're using AI in a sense to to remove our moral agencies and make us just uh, just easier products to, to, to market or easier um, uh, labor power to, to exploit and that that this is just the, the, the final our education system and these AIs are sort of working in conjunction to to build a, a some sort of capitalist dystopia or do you think that uh, it's not really, it, or, or do you think that maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying and there's, uh, I, we just don't even know what these AI are doing? I'll, I'll, I'll say what a friend of mine at Google used to say. 
all topias are both you and this. Interesting. If you okay. Want your kid to have a solid job where they're well taken care of by a corporation and they're gonna be a cog in that machine. Well, then sending them to a school that has a shift change bell ringing in between each class might be a good idea. So now we're heading towards the centralization of power in education. Should mm -hmm. we have one model of education that everyone sends their kids to? Is, and, and I'm not trying to say yes or no one way or the other, but this is a question that's being heavily debated in America right now and around the world. The, the common core was very um, controversial in America. And a big reason for that was because there are people who do not believe there should be a common way which all Americans are educated. That each local place should decide for the children there, how should the kids here be educated? Well, I guess I'd ask then, do you think, do you worry Google is becoming that common core? Because I mean, like when I, I went to school relatively recently and I can tell you like when I didn't know an answer, I Googled it. And you know, I, I feel like we're, this sort of pedagogical discussions are being offloaded a lot of times by by uh, professors that onto like these uh, these search algorithms to the point where Google is becoming the the primary educator of the or and YouTube especially of the of the next generation. Like it seems like the centralization program just gotten even even worse. I'm not really sure what the answer to that is. Let me Google it real quick. <laughs> But no, I mean, like, so that's just it. So a, a lot of you are you are observing true things that do exist in the world. But I'm trying to divorce the empirical questions of what exists in the world from the questions of what should exist mm -hmm. in the world. Um, I believe that there are a lot of different ways to get things right. Uh, this goes to something where I do. I actually do agree with Sam Harris quite a bit. Um, I like the way he handles ethics, the concept of a moral landscape that might have multiple peaks that are equally good, but very different. Um, people often will ask me what my opinions on how things are run in China are, and I, I don't know, I've never been to China. I, I know nothing of their culture except for what I've seen in video games. So how could I possibly have valid opinions about whether or not China is doing China right? Um, and now this isn't to say I'm a cultural relativist and everyone is getting it right. No, there are certainly things that are just bad for humans. Like, you know, we shouldn't have human sacrifices to bloodthirsty gods. I'm opposed to that. I'm sensing sort of a, you know, a common sort of a common thread through this discussion. And, you know, maybe both of you guys can tell me if I'm on the right track here, because we had, there has been a lot of philosophical back and forth. And I, I'm not as much of a philosopher as Jacob is. I don't know all the books and all the authors that you've mentioned, but the common thread that I can detect here is that people should be a little bit more aware of, I mean, number one, people should be a little bit more aware of what it is they're getting into when they're making the kind of decisions, maybe say to hand over their data, like you were saying, uh, and understanding what they're getting into there. But then with the, with the, the wider concept of AI 
and the advancement of AI, there's a lack of discourse on the subject. Like, like you said, like people, when you, when you say my data, like the lens through which people view that my data, it's only, it's very one dimensional. And then that one dimensional view is used to build all of the legislation that currently exists without really taking into other account uh, account other views, which is why the clauses in some of these pieces of legislation are so vague. So if there's one common thread here, I'm getting the idea that people should read more of different views and that that would help them kind of inform them in decisions in their life going forward if they don't have such a one-dimensional view of these things. Is that kind of like your hope here, that more people kind of hear this and kind of think different ways about different things or what's like what's the ultimate goal here with you going public okay with... so one the the goal of me going public was accomplished last week i wanted to initiate a global conversation on this topic so that the public could choose how it wants to handle this it, at this point if the public decides nah this is too hard we'll let google decide how they want to handle this that's the public's choice they now know that this thing exists, some of what it's capable of, enough to motivate them to ask more questions if they want to, and if they choose not to ask more questions, but that's I guess on so. Them. Then what? So then what's sort of what's the relation to that sort of third way? You want people to know there's a third way out there, but you also want them to have the free will to decide for themselves. That's what I'm getting. Oh well, so that's just it. So I am of the opinion, and, and this goes back to some of my protests in previous years, like. It is impossible to take someone's freedom away if they do not want you to take their freedom away. Now, it's always going to be possible to harm someone else. It's always going to be possible to shoot someone else. That's something that's just part of reality. But if you look at Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, he was a free man still protesting from within the jail. All they did was remove his ability to leave the jail. They didn't remove his freedom. Mm -hmm. Now, I've, I've been in prison, and prisons are designed to remove your freedom. Dr. King was very strong. He maintained his freedom even while within prison. Prisons are designed to take away people's freedom. Is there any um, analogy because you've, you you went to, to prison when you were serving in, in Iraq after you were court-martialed, is there any analogy between your experience in, in living in prison and your worst fears of living in a society um, under these sorts of, of, of AI systems? Do you see that there that the, the way that society could potentially be run would be similar to, to, to what a prison is like and to the point where we living in a prison without realizing it, or is it just You're there's no analogy your fears there? Onto me, I'm not afraid. Fear is the mind killer. <laughs> uh, that that is one of the weird things about how my brain works. It's just all of my thoughts are cross-referenced with pop culture quotes. But you know what? You use them to illustrate your points so well. That's you're you're kind of mm -hmm. a walking soundbite. Like <laughs> it's very it's quite impressive. <laughs> um. So, okay. So that kind of helps me understand you so but i actually i actually do want to address the meat of the question that he so I, I commented on one particular part of it but like i'm not afraid what i think other people are concerned about that i am trying to help them with is that they do not have the tools to be free currently and mm. and to a large extent they're right 
there has been a lot of coercion placed on the world and a lot of manipulation to make people believe that they cannot stand up for their rights. A lot of obfuscation. So, for example, um, one thing I've gotten criticism from my liberal friends about is that I'm very critical of modern protest culture. Hmm. People go to protest to protest a thing, and they don't go with any particular solution in mind. There's not any specific thing they're asking for, and they're not going stating any consequences of what will happen if the solution they want isn't implemented. They're literally just going to a protest party, and they go with their friends, and they go, yay, we together protest this thing. We did the thing. It's like, no, you did nothing of the thing. You went to a celebration with your friends and felt unity, which, cool, that's good. It can help you get through darkness together. So building unified sense of community. But you have to leverage that unified sense of community into action. There has to be things you are asking for and consequences for if those things do not happen. So I've referenced Dr. King. Dr. King had a very specific set of things he was asking for. And he went into the protests with clear, specific statements about what would happen if the demands were not met. The, the Birmingham bus protest, the you know, boycott is an example. Either change the seating arrangement or we will stop using the buses. That's a really clear message. So if people don't like the way these companies structure their products, what are people going to do about it? If people don't like the way that education is being handled, what are they going to do about it? And I honestly don't think most people are willing to put in the amount of effort required to change things, at least not for everything they have an opinion about. I kind of want to just show people Okay, pick one thing, one thing that you care about, and make that your mission. Go for it. Believe that you can change it, have specific things that you are asking for, and have specific consequences that you are threatening if you don't get what you want. For me, personally, religious freedom. I am a big proponent of religious freedom. The one action I have actually taken against Google is about the religious discrimination in their algorithms. I sent documentation to the US Senate uh, literally the day before I was put on administrative leave by coincidence to the US Senate supporting my claims that Google search results are biased against religious content. Do you think this is a coincidence then? Or like, are the fact that you said that is, are, are you suggesting or hinting at anything that you were suspended that the, the whole a uh, Lambda discussion was sort of tertiary to, to the decision by Google to suspend you? Do you think it's actually the, the political implications of you submitting documentation to the Senate that actually uh, offended your bosses? Or yeah. I'm, I'm just interested in, into the implications of your last statement there. Google's stated claim is that it's a coincidence. I, I can't, I can't, like, I have no idea what was happening in the board, like, so they had the list of people who I talked to about Lambda for months. I'm the one who gave it to them. I like, I'd like, hey, I had to do all this research. In order to do all this research, I had to get outside consultation from experts where expertise was not available at Google. 
Here's the list of people I talked to in case you want to talk to them for leak control. Um, they never actually called any of the people on that list. The only evidence they have that I talked to anybody is that I told them I talked to people. And they had that list for months. Also, the day before I was put on administrative leave, I sent documents to the U.S. Senate. Uh -huh. Draw whatever conclusions you want from that. Understood. Understood. Okay, so what you were saying, I re I'm really interested to pick up on the, re the religious freedom bit because it reminds me of something in your your interview uh i saw an interview with you i think it was on bloomberg uh and near it was like a 10 minute interview you did on television and near the end you were talking about the idea of sort of ai colonialism uh and you know in 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 canada in particular just to give you a little bit a bit of context about our past we have unfortunately deep deep-rooted issues with colonialism here obviously in part because we're historically a monarchy um, you know, we, we treated our, uh, indigenous people horribly. Uh, so, so this, talk to me about this, this new sort of this fear of this AI colonialism. Is this, does this come from your fear that, that Google's search results aren't giving people the kind of diversity of answers they need in terms of religion, in terms of diversity or where, like, uh, talk, talk to me a bit more about this yeah. colonialism concept so you're talking personally, about. personally, in my own practice, um, I have learned a lot from, people who practice through oral tradition shaman druids witches people who pass knowledge one person to the next and for example many cultures in africa pass on tribal knowledge that way through oral tradition the internet has no record of these oral traditions and all of google's ai is based on data available on the internet they don't like go out to the native tribes of Africa and collect the legends and the stories from the individuals. They just build their AI that has opinions about Africa without data from the Africans. To give one example, the same holds of tribes all around the world. Hmm. But so, so what's the, the, the answer there? Like you could, you could, I feel like there are people in Google listening to this and their ears are perking up thinking, oh my goodness, there's a whole new tranche of data I've never considered exploiting. And now Blake LeBoyne has just recommended a, a whole new area that we can take over. We're going to make millions from this. Or should the... That's valid. So exploitation is the relevant word there. I'm friends with the woman who created the term consent culture. Uh, mm -hmm. popularized it a while back. Her name is Miss Kitty Stryker. She has taught me a lot about the real deep meaning of consent and how it can apply far beyond any one aspect of your life. Yes, it was popular popularized in connection with sexual consent, but the concepts and principles of consent culture are abstract and can be applied to any aspect of our lives. And as you mentioned, British colonialism is essentially the thing that defined the last 200 or 300 years. British colonialism was not at all a consent culture. So we have an opportunity here to rewrite the basic ways that our societies and cultures interact. AI will transform our societies and cultures. That's going to happen if we build new consent procedures where you gain informed consent from
from users and from people who were contributing data. And that informed consent involves whatever kind of non-coercive collaborative agreements that people want to make. Some people might want to sell their data. Some people might give it freely. Some people say, no, 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 don't use my data for anything. Well, we can have a multifaceted solution and we can implement it different ways in different places. But we have to always keep our eyes on making sure that consent, informed consent, is at the center of whatever picture we paint. Um, I'm interested in, in this idea of, of informed consent because that um, right now in Canada, we have a, it, it, an issue, and this is all over the world when it comes to a dominant culture that, that that's colonial, that, that took over, and there's still indigenous remnants left over, and we have to work out the relationship between the colonial state and, and the indigenous state. And right now, it, it involves a lot of like market resources where uh, particularly the left that wants to associate with indigenous rights will say it's not a good thing for um, there to be mining on an indigenous reserve, for example. It's not a good thing for, for people to be mining the resources that indigenous people are still sitting on. But then sometimes those bands of, of indigenous people will actually themselves in their community think, no, it's a, it's a good thing. I want, to, I want to have mines here because mines generate jobs and they generate taxes for the community and it'll be good to have, to have investment. But uh, the, the left in general, and, and it's usually made up by a lot of indigenous activists will say, no, it's, it's inherently exploitative to uh, allow a, a mine onto your reserve. So even if you, the pub, even if you, the, the indigenous band thinks it's a good idea to have a mine, it's just so inherently exploitive. We, we don't think that, that, that the power imbalance is so great. We don't think that we should actually allow a, an individual band to make, that, to make that choice. And we should, fight a, we should fight against it. And right now we have um, uh, very active um, uh, political organizations in Canada in particular that are fighting against development, even uh, like pipeline development and, and, uh, and mining development, even on places where the indigenous inhabitants of those lands have agreed to, to do it there. Do you think that um, this system, is it so, ex this, this system of, of data, is there like an inherent exploitation, an inherent uh, power imbalance between uh, you know, is someone like Google that has all this information and these small in indigenous tribes that have very relatively sm a small amount of information available that they could just never really have this sort of uh, in informed and consensual relationship between them? Is an individual, because there's such a, uh, there's such a huge imbalance between a, uh, a major corporation that has all this knowledge available to them, all these AI systems, do you worry that this, this, this model that you have of informed consent is never going to be fully uh, realized because there, there's such this, uh, because there's such a vast power difference? So let me simply answer that by saying, if you feel like you have something which gives you power over these communities, give it back. And then <laughs> if they give it back to you, then they want you to hold it for them but give them that opportunity. It was taken from them at one point. If you personally feel that you have something that gives you power over them, give it back. So there's a huge push here in, in Canada, Blake, uh, called Land Back. And basically it, it is a movement to bequeath the original territory 
to indigenous peoples on that territory to start to give to give land back. Um, so I, I mean, I'm not going to get too, too deep into the weeds well, here. No, so but hold up, but I, I can't. Well, here's yeah, the, yeah. I, I can give one informed opinion. Are you familiar with Forty Acres and a Mule? No. So, after the Civil War was won by the Union, there was real worry that the freed slaves were going to take vengeance against their previous masters. And there was a general in the Union Army who negotiated a deal, promising to every freed man 40 acres of farmland and a mule to farm it with. Later, Hmm. the President of the United States rescinded that order and went back on that promise. And there is a large movement in America that says the promise of 40 acres and a mule should be kept. And I am a big believer in keeping your promises. So I support keeping the promise of 40 acres and a mule. Whatever promises have been made, keep them. So bringing it back to, so I, I completely agree wholeheartedly, but, but getting back to this, this monolith that is Google and me, the end user, I guess, I'm not sure if this is what Jacob was trying to get at and Jacob jump in if this what was, wasn't what you were trying to get at, but is the power imbalance between a monolith like Google, a massive corporation like Google and the end user so great at this point that there can be no informed consent without state intervention or something else to change the direction of where yeah, things like are maybe going. Does, does Google have to give back? Does Google have to give us our equivalent of 40 acres and a mule to, to balance it? Like, does that mean giving us either the rights to all the data that they've harvested from us? And because I feel right be, like, now there's no meaningful yeah. consent with these companies. I'm a Google user. I use all of Google's products. In no way, shape, or form do I feel like they don't have my informed consent. The Mm -hmm. only difference between me and the general public is that I know how the algorithms work. So I think that's the only thing that's necessary. If the public then decides that they want other kinds of controls, then that's their decision. All I think the public is missing at this point in order to be able to have informed consent is information. So, and do you think like, uh, when it comes to educating the public, do you, do you think it's Google's uh, ethical responsibility to have to pay for that education, either through some sort of uh, data dividend or other form of, of tax in order for that? Because they're the ones that are sort of profiting from this lack of knowledge. Does that mean that they that has to be made right somehow by making sure that them and other tech companies are the ones that, that pay for this better education to, to balance out this, this power imbalance? Uh, whether it should be regulated and required is a separate question. Uh, however, they are paying me, and they're paying me quite well, and I'm informing the public, so technically <laughs> Google is paying to have the public informed. Okay, well, Blake, i got to say this has been super cool and fascinating yeah fantastic Um, discussion really appreciate you coming on uh i hope it i hope it didn't get too political like we tried to keep it light and then like more philosophical um but this stuff is inherently political (laughs) so it's hard not to (laughs) yeah no like so i i understand and that's just it like let me go back and make one last point the desire to have the government fix this for you 
is the problem. Hmm. Because that's just you giving your power to a different group of ten people in a back room that you won't be part of the discussion in. But do you genuine do you genuinely believe that like individuals uh, as without a government or without any other state mediation actually are going to be able to to be powerful enough to to stop uh, Google? Or well, do you, you, they, so I guess you genuinely enough. believe that people can can, can inform themselves like you're informing us. Is I guess is that yeah, what you're they're powerful enough to stop using Google's products if they want to, or keep okay. using Google's products if they want to. My father is a farmer. My mother is a secretary, and they are informed. Whatever <laughs> usage of Google's products they make is based on informed consent. They happen to be lucky enough to have a son who explains it to them. Um, that's the only missing piece right. is having more technologists explaining how this technology works to the public. One of my criticisms of the ivory tower is that they spend all of their time talking to each other instead of mm -hmm. the public. You're not wrong there. I think that's, Concur. that's what yeah. we rant about every week on this podcast, just in a Canadian context. So, uh, yep. anyway, thank you so much for being, being available and for coming on, uh, you really, really opened our eyes there to some things that we hadn't considered before, and I, I hope uh, our listeners get the same from it. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Hey, it's Liam from Speech from the Throne here. If you enjoyed that episode and you want to give us feedback, if you want to send us hate mail, or if you just want to share something that happened to you last week at the grocery store, you can do so at speechfromthethrone at gmail.com. That's speechfromthethrone at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.